Man, it's Merry Christmas. It's good to see y'all. Thanks for spending part of your Christmas day with us. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. My name's David. I'm the pastor of the church. Uh, second of two services. We only have two instead of four today. I, I kind of feel like I'm goofing off today, you know? <laughs> Not earning a full paycheck. I kind of know how the Joe Andrews feels every Sunday, you know? Just <laughs> showing up for the ride, man. That's how it is. Next week, we're back to four services. The 830 traditional and then the contemporary services, which are at 945, 11, and 1215. We start a new series entitled Collision, What Happens When Our Culture collides with followers of Christ. And so I hope you'll be here for that. I hope you've had a great day uh, today so far. It looks like a lot of gifts have been open, and, and uh, I've asked some of the kids for the, well, the earlier service. I asked one little girl that hardly ever talks to me, so what'd you get for Christmas? And she started telling me, and she wouldn't shut up, man. I mean, she just kept going on and on. Like, You're really, really well. I didn't understand a single thing. I don't know what in the world she told me, but she got a really good Christmas. Hope you did. I see some dads taking a break from putting everything together um, in Christmas Day. I always hated that. It's nice to be able to come to church. I know some of you, if you were like me, about halfway through doing that, you start cussing Santa a little bit so you can come here and ask forgiveness and pray for a miracle that when you get back home, it'll all be finished. It won't be. The elf on the shelf will not do any of that stuff for you, I'm afraid. But we are so glad that you're here and you celebrate part. Uh, Christmas doesn't fall on Sunday very often. Someone told me the next time will be 11 years before it'll happen again. Uh, I I didn't say this in in the earlier service, but I looked at some of them uh, thinking about that when I told them that and thinking, some of you ain't going to be here. This will be it. So, uh, but none of you, you all look good. I think I'll see y'all in 11 years. Well, I won't see you because I ain't going to be here, but 11 years, so we'll see you. So, uh, we're in a series uh, that we started throughout the month of December entitled, The Day the World Forever Changed. Because on Christmas Day, the world changed. It just did. And today we come and conclude that that series with a message entitled, The Night When Christ Was Born. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And and what we're going to do today is we finish this series up. I'm going to ask and attempt to answer the question, what is the true meaning of Christmas? What is the true, true, true meaning of Christmas? Now, I'm going to take this passage and kind of divide it up into three sections. Uh, And what I'm going to start off with is talking about the birth, the the birth of Jesus. And now, you know, we live in a day and age, and I realize this, that every time I come to Christmas every year, I have to do this a little bit. I have to talk about all the things that get said about Christmas, a lot of the false teachings, a lot of the stuff you read on the internet, people preach, and, and a lot of that that's out there, and I get it, and I understand uh, the, the, that you encounter a lot of this. The thing you need to realize about the birth of the story of Jesus is that it's, it's very simple. I mean, it's not complex. It's very brief, um, and, it's, and it's based in history. I mean, it, it, it's set in a true historical setting. It's unlike anything else. So when people say, well, it's similar to these birth stories and those birth stories, the answer is no, it's, it's really not. I mean, uh, if you go up and you look at, say, Hercules or Perseus or Greek mythology, I mean, they're complicated, complex. It involves all these, fe- you know, the emotions and anger and all these complex things happening. They're elaborate. They're obviously myth. I mean, there's, they're obviously myth, they're not true. And, I, you know, you get a lot of stuff about people, you know, talking about the factuality and that Christianity based it off this or that. And, and so one of the things that I've shared with you earlier in the series is that I always say, well, you need to give me some documented evidence. I need to see the evidence that supports what you say. Because I know what it says in the New Testament. I know the evidence that supports that. One of the cool things about Luke is that uh, Luke was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. 
And uh, he had come from a scientific background. He was a, a doctor, a medical doctor. We know that. Probably at some point, his life overlapped the life of Jesus. I mean, Luke wrote this about 60 AD. He started hanging with Paul about 50, 49, 50 AD. He was already a doctor. We know that from Colossians. So, he, you know, you didn't get, uh, it's just like now. You had to be pretty smart to get, be a doctor. Things had to happen. So at some point, his life overlapped Jesus. And what's really cool about Luke, he tells us in his gospel in the book of Acts, that he did a lot of research. He went and he looked and he, and, and he talked to people. I mean, Luke knew apostles. Luke had what we would call, you know, firsthand information. I mean, probably got the birth story from Mary, if not from Mary, someone closely associated with her. I, you know, when I was in college, I went to Trinity University, studied history. Um, went to Trinity. Uh, it's a great academic institution. I didn't go there because of the great academics. I went there to play football. I went there to stay close to Debbie. Um, you know, didn't want any guy moving in on my girl, so I stayed close to her. Guys that tried didn't work. I remember one guy in particular. I wasn't too worried about him. He was in the marching band and played the trombone. I'm just saying, come on, you know. <laughs> football player, guy playing the trombone. I wasn't worried about him at all, really, but, you know. So, you, you, you know, and... and Part of being involved in history is the understanding the importance of primary sources or firsthand accounts as much as you can. And what's really cool about Luke is that's what he had telling his story. And here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we'll have these people say, you know, this didn't really happen, or this couldn't have occurred, or these were the things that happened this way. And I'm like, how arrogant are you? I mean, here was a guy right there. And you're saying you know more than he did when you don't have any documentation, just hypothesis and theory to prove it. One of the really cool things also that happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s, is this guy named Sir William Ramsey. And, and listen, if you got the term sir in front of your name, you're probably pretty important, right? I mean, Sir Paul McCartney, you know, poor people. I don't really know what the female version, someone told me what the female version was of sir, it's dame. And I said, oh, okay. Well, now I learned something today. I didn't really know. So I said, dame something. So, you know, Sir William Ramsey, he was in that whole area of the New Testament, did a lot of research, a lot of archaeology. And he said this, there's nothing that there's anything to conflict with in all his archaeological evidence and what he found with Luke. And said, in fact, he said everything confirms Luke. And he came to the conclusion that Luke was probably the best historian in the early part of the life of the church, or the first century. He was the best historian of anyone in the first century. And you got guys like Josephus, the Jewish historian that people rely on, who is known to exaggerate and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's nothing, there's no evidence to conflict anything that Luke did, and everything actually kind of points to him. And probably sometimes, you know, if things are silent and we don't have maybe contemporary evidence to back up exactly what Luke said, probably should give Luke the benefit of the doubt since he's been right every time and since he lived back then. And living then, he's telling us this amazing story that there is absolutely no evidence historically or factually to refute it. So I'm going to go with Luke. I just, I just feel I'll do it that way. And here's what Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And right off the back, notice, Luke just puts this in historical context. Caesar Augustus. Well, you all know there was a Caesar Augustus. You know all about him. I mean, it was while he was there, and he had a census. Now, we know that a census occurred under Caesar Augustus about every 14 years, and they kept occurring after he died. I mean, they just, they would occur. We know that. The purpose of the census is for one thing, taxing. 
That's why you take every census. Why do we take census in America? Tax you. I know it's to know how many people we got. There's other ways to know how many people we got. I'm just being a little cynical, but it's probably mostly to, to tax. Because, you know, every time we have a census, taxes go up. So I'm just relating to, but then again, taxes go up all the time anyway. So anyways, they, they had a census so they could tax the people. And we know, we know one occurred, there's documentation about 20 AD. One occurred, we know, in about 6 AD. Now, they didn't put AD back then because they didn't do it that way. But we know from the line of the times. In fact, in Acts, Luke writes in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, He's quoting Gamaliel, who's talking about a time there was a revolt because of the census. And so that happened. Now, 14 years from that would have been about 8 B.C. Now, Jesus was born before Herod died. Herod died in 4 B.C. So Jesus was probably born about 5 or 6 B.C. So there was a census ongoing. And probably what happened is because the Jews hated census. And they would, you know, revolt when they happened if they knew it was for taxation purpose. Herod, who is a historical figure mentioned in Matthew and earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and later. But Herod, for all his cruelty, was a pretty good administrator. And so Herod would have tried to work out a way to make the taxation or the census a little less disturbing for the Jewish people. So it probably took longer for that to occur. But we're told that it happened while Quirinius was governor. Now, if you do some research, you'll find out that uh, Quirinius was actually governor about, you know, 5, 6, 7 AD. And there's some, you know, dispute was he ever in the area of Palestine, the area in Syria, when this event occurred. Well, thanks to Sir William Ramsey, we know that there's documentation that Quirinius was in the area doing something official for Rome, probably overseeing a census. I'm telling you all this to know that when you read and you hear stuff and people say, well, this didn't occur or that didn't occur, actually all the evidence points to it did occur in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Luke puts this in a historical context, and that's critical. So he's giving us authenticity, things that people would know and could check out to be true. Then he says in verse 3, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So what Herod did is he said, if you're going to do this census, we're going to have you go back home, your hometown, where you came from. And everybody was going to go home. Now, you, a lot of people you know, may not have known where their family or their tribe or, or whatever, you know, what their clan would have come from officially, but, but some did. And that's where they would go, and Joseph, and Joseph did. So we see in the next verse what happened. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea. He went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So Joseph, being of the family of David, and Mary also, we'll see in just a second, they went to Bethlehem. Now, this is where they went because that's where their people were from. It's an interesting thing when you think about how God works and how God works in the midst of historical settings. We know in Matthew, in Matthew's account, when the Magi came looking for Jesus, looking for the child to be born, and they went to Herod and said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Where can we find him? Herod asked the religious leaders, and the religious leaders knew this. This is what they knew, that according to Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. They all knew that. The Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. So here you have God working through human history to get Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Bethlehem because it says he had to register with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. They had to get them there to Bethlehem. Now, sometimes I read people saying, well, you know, Mary, why would Mary have gone? She didn't really have to go. You know, sometimes I read people and think, you don't have a lot of common sense. Now, here's Mary. She's probably nine months pregnant, right? She has this baby. And she's a virgin, 
And everybody knows it. And so there's all this innuendo and scandal around her. The angel appealed to her. The angel appealed to Joseph. So they, they know the truth. Probably no one else is buying it, but maybe her mama. And, 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 she's, and maybe a few others. But I mean, so you think, I mean, I understand they're teenagers. I get this. I mean, she's about 15, 16. He's probably 17, 18. But you really think Joseph was going to leave her at home with all those women in that town just doing this about her all the time? You know how it is, women. You know how you are. Guys do it too, but we only say it once. We don't repeat the gospel. We just say it one time. You've got to listen up and pay attention. But they go back and forth. I mean, you think he was going to expose her to that? I mean, they were in love. Listen, when, when Debbie and I were young, I mean, we were everywhere together. I'd have never left her anywhere like that. So we, you know, they went, plus, because they're pretty good Jewish kids, they understand that she is carrying the Messiah and, you know, they were taught the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem, so that's where they're going. And it says, they went, and while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now, I know we, we had this romantic kind of view that as soon as she arrived in Bethlehem, she gave birth to the baby. Well, it probably took a few days. But anyways, she gave birth to her firstborn son, firstborn because she would have others. And she wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. You know, we, we, we sometimes give the innkeeper kind of a bad rap. Like, you know, they showed up, knocked on the door of the inn, and he said, no, you're pregnant, get out of here. And they had to leave and go find a place. Let me tell you something about inns back then. They were not nice. I mean, they're, 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 they're horrible places to stay. Uh, you know, I, I think it's amusing. As time going on for Debbie and I, uh, when we were younger, we would stay at some pretty cheap places because we didn't have much money. I mean, you know, 40 years ago, it was like any place under 40. I mean, if it was 39 bucks, the king just a 39, we're staying there. Great, you know. As we got older, my wife put some really strict rules in place. Like, we couldn't stay any place that had an outside entrance, right? I mean, you have, and, and like, if, you know, it's really cool when you got luggage. You park in front of the door, and guys, you take your luggage and put it in. <laughs> we ain't doing that. We're staying somewhere where I have to park in a lot or in a garage, and I have to go get the cart to take the luggage upstairs because, you know, Her Majesty, Dame Debbie, has decided we're staying in a room like that, you know. Standards were way different, you know, in our life. Back then, they didn't have those choices. They were all, you know, run-down, cheap places, you know, risky places to stay. The innkeeper maybe even done them a favor because they were able to go someplace quiet and have their baby there in an inn, not an inn, but in, in, in a stable, probably in a cave, in, in a place there. And so here you have this very humble account. There's no myth here. There's no legend. There's no creation. I mean, if you were going to make up the birth of the Savior, you wouldn't do it this way. It would look like mythology. Instead, what you have is Jesus fulfilling what was said in the Old Testament to get him there. And here's what you really see, that the birth of Jesus happened exactly the way God intended. It is historical and factual, yet still miraculous and providential. It happened exactly the way God intended. I mean, think about it. This was God's doing. He used all the circumstances of history to get Jesus right where he needed him to be. It was also miraculous and providential how it occurred. It was still a virgin birth. It was an amazing event. We go from the birth and we go to the worship. You know, a large part of what Christmas is is worshiping our Lord. And so we see in verse 8, 
in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. Shepherds were interesting uh, people. Socially, shepherds were like on the lowest level. I mean, you know, the servants and slaves were below them, uh, you know, and homeless and all that, lepers and all that below them. But I mean, they couldn't even testify in a court of law. I mean, shepherds, they said, had a hard time between understanding what is mine and what is thine, you know, as it goes. Um, I, I tried to think of a, a group in our current culture who you could relate to this, the lack of trust and the looking down like shepherds and everything I came to. I mean, like, I, I was afraid I might have, have some in church. And the only group I could think of really was uh, lawyers. Those are the only ones that I could think of. You could think down like that. So, so if you're a lawyer, I'm sorry. I was playing the odds. The odds are there's no lawyers here. But uh, I hope. I'm kidding. I love lawyers if they're mine, always. And the amazing thing when you think about it is if you go, if you go to the resurrection of Jesus and um, you see the empty tomb, who were the first people to empty tomb? Women. Who was the first person to see Jesus after he rose back up? It was Mary Magdalene, a woman. You realize that women had no ability to testify in court. Their witness was not legitimate. Same thing about shepherds. Shepherds could never testify in a court of law or any type of court. God does amazing things. And the people who, the first people at the birth, the first people at the birth of Jesus, when you think about it, it's going to be Mary and Joseph, maybe a kid with a drum. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Little drummer boy. Your family won't let you sit with them? What'd you do, mess up Christmas already? <laughs> one of them loves you. The middle one loves you. Where was I? Oh, in the shepherds. <laughs> People who had no account, really. Notice what happens. And the angel. Oh, I'll go back. I'm going to go back. I forgot what I to say. You got all excited about Brian speaking to me like that. Uh, one of the things that happens uh, oftentimes in talking about the birth of Jesus is that people like to point out that he probably wasn't born December 25th. Now, understand, it doesn't matter whether he's, it doesn't say in the New Testament that he was born on December 25th at all. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that a lick. You know, now the early, early church fathers and, and, and people kind of took that date, and there's reason for it. For one of the reasons people say he wasn't born in, in December 25th or in the winter is because shepherds, that shepherds would not be watching flocks during the winter month by Bethlehem. And for the most part, that's true. But they tend to overlook one very important thing, that Bethlehem was right outside um, Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was this place called the temple. And in the temple, every day, they made sacrifices. They made sacrifices of all types of animals, especially of sheep. And if you're going to have sheep being sacrificed, lambs being sacrificed every day, you know what you got to have? A flock. And if you're going to have a flock, you need to have shepherds. So there were always shepherds close by the temple. When people say they weren't, it frustrates me because it means they did a lack of research and, and they, didn't do their, they didn't do a good job looking at stuff. It doesn't matter when he was born. But what matters was that he was born the way the Lord wanted him to do. Now, verse 9, it says this. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The angel of the Lord, once again, Zechariah, Mary, we know in Matthew's account, Joseph, and now here with the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around him, the gradients of the Lord. This is God revealing himself to them. They were terribly frightened, as everyone is when an angel appears. 
right? And all throughout the Christmas story, everybody's scared when the angel comes. So what do you see right off the bat in verse 10? Do not be afraid. But behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. I bring you good news. That term, good news, in the Greek is the word euangelizomai. It's a beautiful word. We get our term evangelism from it. The noun verse in euangelion, we basically translate gospel. It's good news. In antiquity, oftentimes, for a major, a major occurrence, for instance, a, a, there was a great battle won, and when the general had won the battle and they come into the towns, they would come saying, we proclaim good news, good news, good news, gospel news has come. We've won a battle. By the time you get to the New Testament, really, and in the New Testament, the noun and the verbal form are used so much, they're synonymous with Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the message of Jesus, he begins in chapter 1. He says, come to you, repent, and believe the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. And here you have the good news being proclaimed. The good news about Jesus. It's with joy. It's for everyone. Luke was a Gentile, including Gentiles. It's for us. Today in the city of David, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Or in the Greek, it says Christ Lord. Now, here's the the thing. The term Savior speaks of one who rescues. He's saying there has come one who rescues, who delivers you. He is Christ Lord. Christ, the Messiah, Lord Yahweh. He is man God. He is God in the flesh. What's being proclaimed is the coming of the Savior, God in the flesh, to bring good news to all of us. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So there may be a few babies in Bethlehem, but only one in a manger. So they would, they would know where he was when they went that way. And then it says this, And suddenly, when the announcement of the good news, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Praise God in the highest of ways. And on, on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Some of your versions have of good favor. The angels couldn't help themselves. This is reminiscent of what you see in Isaiah chapter 6. They couldn't help. But with the announcement of Jesus came the announcement of praise, the announcement of worship. And they worshiped and honored him. Why? Because God deserved that honor and glory because he sent Jesus. Because on mankind, he had provided a way of peace. Away from our sin, away from our rebellion, he had provided peace. Peace, and it either means on those who trust Christ, who will be pleased with, or he was pleased upon men to do this act of grace or favor. He provided a way for us, and that way is a way of worship. So it's important to understand this, that God revealing himself is the basis of our worship. Why do we worship? Because God has revealed himself. The idea of worshiping is, is not simply to, to be in a service and to sing or to hear preaching. Worship is the idea of bowing before or acknowledging or honoring to the highest degree. And in that, we honor God because of Jesus. In fact, here's the thing. Ultimately, worship is the result of a relationship with Jesus. Jesus came, and the worship was magnified. You know, people can praise God and not be a follower of Christ. It happens. I know, I know I hear preachers say, well, you know, you can't praise God or thank God if you're not a Christian. Well, that's not true. It happens all the time. I've seen it. There are a lot of people who believe in God, who, who, who may even be Christians kind of nominally, you know, in name only. But, I mean, things happen in their life to praise God. In fact, I'm gonna, this is probably an important thing for us to realize. We don't get to tell God how he reaches people. 
And when God reaches people who are not followers of Christ, he can do it however he chooses to get them to come to Jesus. And oftentimes he works in their life to answer the prayers and to be a part of their life so that they will realize that God truly exists in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and trust him. But that's not worship. Worship occurs when the followers of Christ acknowledge who God is because we have trusted him. We have depended upon him. See, true worship always involves a commitment of our life. And this is the thing we need to realize. When we worship, we honor and commit ourselves to God in Jesus. The third thing we see then is the witness. And to be honest with you, witness and worship really go together. They're hard to separate. When the angels had gone away from into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, you know, I bet they were started talking a lot then. Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let's go verify. Let's go make sure this is true. There's nothing wrong with verifying. There's nothing wrong in our lives just wanting to know that the story is true. One of the important things that I'm doing today is giving you an understanding that you can trust this account of the birth of Christ, that it's authentic as well as authoritative. So they came in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. They came, and they saw Jesus, and they saw him. That must have been an amazing thing to be told that the Son of God was here, and they look, and it's just a baby. It's just a baby, but it's a baby that's God in the flesh. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child, probably to Mary and Joseph, but we would know later on to others. In fact, all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Everybody who heard their story wondered. They were amazed. It didn't say that they acted upon it or did anything, but understand the shepherds, they encountered Jesus. The shepherds encountered Jesus. And they told others about it. They heard the revelation of God. They saw the revelation of God from the angels. And then they went and saw the truth of Jesus. It says, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. She treasured everything that happened. I imagine, I don't, someday I need, one year I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about Mary pondering things in her heart. But today's not the day. But she valued that. And the shepherds went back glorifying, look glorifying and praising God, worshiping God. They have gave witness, and they're worshiping God for all they had heard and seen, just as been told them, just as God had said, just as God had revealed to them. That's the way it is. It's an amazing thing that God is always right, and he is never wrong. Every time God speaks and reveals, whether we understand it or not, God is always revealing truth to us. Always revealing truth to us. Sometimes I have friends that might tell me about the church they're going to, and what do you think? What do you think about this church? And I always have the same response. Are they preaching truth? Are they preaching what is true? Are they preaching the gospel? Here's what you need to see about the shepherds. That's important to us. When we become followers of Jesus, we tell others about Jesus. When we become the followers of Jesus, we tell others. It's natural. It's who we are. It's what we do. So this is Christmas. I know some of you are, are anxious. And some of you ladies are probably thinking, you got to get going, preacher. I got something in the oven. You're worried that it's going to burn. I understand. It won't. It'll be okay. But you're worried because you know what happens. If it's burns, you don't have any options. You've ruined Christmas if it burns. <laughs> ruined it. There's nowhere else to go. The only thing you have to open is Denny's, IHOP, and Village Inn. I know that because I've done the research. <laughs> it's 
where I'm going to one of those places. Someone asked me, which are you going to? I'm not telling you. I don't want people stalking me in my restaurant. <laughs> but here it is. It's Christmas Day. We celebrate Jesus. So let me ask you once again. What really is the true meaning of Christmas? What is it? Well, here it is. Christmas is God providing a Savior. You got that? That's Jesus Christ. It's God providing for us a Savior. Whatever else Christmas is, it's God providing a Savior. And that is one specific historical person, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And once we follow Jesus, we worship God. We give witness to Jesus. We celebrate and tell his story. One of the things that we stress here at First Baptist is that in everything we do, we want to honor God, worship him, and help people come to Jesus to tell his story. This Christmas, through all the things that we have done, it's been designed to celebrate and to share the story of Jesus. And that needs to be your life, not just at Christmas, but every day is to celebrate and worship God and to share with others the story that changed your life. But you can't share it if it's not your story too. So let me ask you, have you really in your life trusted Christ to be your Savior? Have you trusted him completely? Here it is Christmas. I mean, wouldn't that be a great way to celebrate, to realize you need to trust Jesus because you never truly have? You believe you're in church. You've never trusted him with your life. And for some of you, once you trust him, do you really celebrate and worship? I mean, I know you come Christmas and probably will come Easter. Maybe on some Sundays. But every day of your life do you celebrate. Why not? And do you share the story with other people? You know people who need Jesus. I know people who need Jesus. We've got to share a story. We're going to have our invitation. It's actually the last invitation we'll give this year. And we're, some of us will be just standing right here. And listen, if you want to give your life to Christ, you can. If you want to come and say, hey, you know, I need to pray and ask for help in celebrating Jesus better, we'll pray with you. If you want us to pray for someone you need to tell about Jesus, we'll, we'll pray with you about who you need to tell. If you want to join our church, you can. Whatever you need to do, you can do it. And, and here's the thing. You're going to walk out of here. And it's still Christmas. But as you walk out of here, please be sure you understand that Christmas is about the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we worship and of whom we bear witness. So, Father, we thank you for Christmas. It's really kind of a great way to end our year celebrating Jesus, his birth. And then sharing that with others. And I know we're going to all leave here and we got other things to do today. I get that. And a lot of it's going to be great things. And help us enjoy this day. But remember, the reason we could have enjoyed this day is because of you working in our life in a very real way. You broke into history. You did something actual and factual. And at the same time, something unbelievably miraculous. You gave us a Savior. And all you ask of us is that we take our lives and give it 
back to you through him. And then once we do that, we'll worship and we'll witness and we'll celebrate and we'll tell the story of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? You come.